You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 131 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, joined alongside Jeremy Paxton. And we took last week off, uh, unfortunately lost a listener of the uh, the weekly podcast that was my grandfather martin shelton so uh thoughts and prayers to him he's in a much better place right now and uh, i guess we'll dedicate this podcast to him and uh jeremy we've got a uh you know a, a pretty fun guest here on the show joining us in a few minutes and that's dan crenshaw who is running for congress u.s congress not not state of texas congress but u.s congress and texas congressional district number two uh, sixth-generation Texan, uh, Navy SEAL. Uh, great conversation that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. But, uh, Jeremy, how have you been, man? It, it's been about a week and a half since we podcasted, two weeks since we podcasted. But I've seen you at Rockets games, uh, Astros games. You were at a wedding. I don't know. T- what's going on? I've been to a couple of weddings. It's wedding season, so um, I'm currently a lot redder and a little just a little hungover right now. So, okay. um, yeah, it's it's been a crazy couple of weeks. But, yeah, I got to see the... Astros go down to the Yankees. That game ticked me off. Oh, oh, that series of games was horrible. I mean... I mean, Verlander strikes out 14 in eight innings, then Giles blows the game in the ninth. Yeah, for the... I mean, to Giles' credit, he did punch himself in the face. Literally. So, literally punched himself in the face. So, I'm like... (laughs) Yeah, he kind of deserved it. So, um, yeah, it's it was kind of disappointing to see that the Astros are, are struggling in this latest series of games. But you know, yeah, they dropped two of three against the Diamondbacks, three of four against the Yankees. It's you know it, it's it's not going to get much easier. They have uh, I don't know sort of an easier series against Oakland coming up, uh, but then Cleveland comes to town. And uh, Trevor Bauer, who was talking smack about the Astros' spin rates. But, I don't know. The frustrating thing for me with the Astros is how dominant their starting pitching has been. Yet, they're only six games above five hundred. So, it's frustrating for Astros fans, but the offense just hasn't... Yeah, the bats there. that's been cold, and that was that was pretty obvious from uh, the game that I watched. It we just cannot make. I mean, we, we can get runners on base, but beyond that, just completing and just following through, we just can't take that and make it into momentum. Yeah, Astros are four and six in their last ten games. Uh, currently sitting one game behind the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Uh, on the other end of. Uh, I guess Houston sports, the Rockets looking very good, taking a 3-1 series lead uh, by knocking off the Utah Jazz on Sunday night, 187. Clint Capella looked like an absolute beast. He had 15 rebounds, 12 points, 6 blocks. Houston has a commanding lead coming back to the Toyota Center Tuesday night to uh, look to end the series with a potential berth against Golden State in the uh, Western Conference Finals on the line. But, uh, Jeremy, are you becoming more of a basketball fan as the Rockets get deeper into the playoffs? Um, more of a Rockets fan, yes, but a basketball fan, no. I could care less about what's going on Fair. in the league. But I, I will say this, uh, Clint Capella, what a defensive performance, what a beast, knocking down shots left and right from Gobert. You know, there was that, I mean, just swatting him yeah, away. Gobert, who was bigger than him, defensive player of the year. I mean, just a physical freak. Uh, and then Capella, who looks like he weighs, I don't know, buck 95 right. uh, at seven foot. But it was interesting. We were watching the game with somebody who uh, made a comment to you uh, suggesting Suggesting, I guess they panned to Akeem Olajuwon in the stands. And uh, this person asked if that was Capella's dad. 
I thought that was kind of funny. I mean, defensively, both phenomenal players. I suppose there's a, a sort of a resemblance. I'm not sure. Mentor? Yeah, maybe Mentor? A, maybe a spiritual father, something like that. But Fair. it was really funny seeing the, seeing the grunt on Akeem's face, um, you know, juxtaposed to John Stockton, who did not look very happy to be there in Salt Lake City. So um, did you ever see that... Uh, I think it was an ESPN 30 for 30 on the Dream Team. And, of course, you've got, you know, all of these huge players. You've got, you know, Michael Jordan. You've got Charles Barkley. Uh, but, anyways, there was a documentary that followed them. I, I believe the games were held in uh, Barcelona. But they get off the team bus. And, you know, everyone just hounds all of these players. But John Stockton, who, you know, just looks like, a, I don't know, a used car salesman or an accountant of some sort, gets off the bus and nobody recognizes him. Like, people come up asking, you know, if they could take a picture, not of him, but if he could just, like, take a photo, like, of them with the background of Barcelona. I don't know. I, it's To be to be totally honest with you, I, I kind of sympathize with that. Like, I forgot what he looked like. I knew his name. I knew he was a big, you know, jazz player in the 90s, but I didn't know Never won was. a title. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I kind of feel bad for guys like that. But uh, Hakeem has two rings to his name. God bless him. Hopefully the Rockets can take it all the way, but we'll see. I, I'm not, you know, I, I want to say a little bit. I, I, I've not bought any Rockets anything. I will not buy any Rockets anything. Not until they win a championship. No, no. no even after that, I just can't. I just can't do it. So you're telling me they win the championship, they knock out I'm, Golden I'm State, more and then a, beat LeBron in the finals. You're not going to buy a shirt. You know what? I, you're wearing an Astro okay, shirt right okay, now. I, 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 I take that, that back. I have series. bought a shirt, but it was given to me at the Rockets game. How did you buy a shirt that was given to you? Well, I bought the tickets, and the shirt came with the tickets. So, therefore, I bought the shirt. <laughs> it was a giveaway. It was. I, okay. wore, I wore it last night. I was like, So what eh, would it take whatever. to get you in Rockets gear? Are you just not a fan of the red? Is that? Is that I think so. I think it's the red. I just can't. I can't do the red. And uh, honestly, just, I don't know. I just can't. I don't know. I, 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 won't, I don't want to be... Uh, I feel like the more Astro stuff I wear, the more they tend to win. So, I'm Well, gonna... apparently you've been wearing more Astro stuff, and they currently sit a game behind the Angels. Well, so you know maybe what? You should I, this stop. is the first day. Yeah, this is the first day in a while I've worn Astro stuff, so <laughs> i got to get it together. But anyways, uh, we have a great show coming up for you. Yeah, a nice transition there. Dan Crenshaw running for the seat in the 2nd Congressional District, replacing Ted Poe. Um, really crowded field going into that election. Yeah, I mean, there were like absolutely. nine nine candidates, uh, people with a lot of money and a lot of backing. You know, if you yeah, was, there, there was someone uh, Kathleen Wall who I think was just completely out of touch with the uh, the voters. You know, she I think put up six seven million dollars of her own money right. in the campaign. Finished third, of course. Crenshaw getting in the in the uh, you know the runoff election Tuesday May twenty second. But uh, he's got a really interesting background. You know, he he was a Navy SEAL. Uh, he's a policy guy. He's relatively young. I think he's a year or two older than you are. Uh, very interesting candidate. And he's actually, you know, going door to door, shaking hands, meeting people. Um, and it's it's almost a similar strategy to what I've seen from Beto for the U.S. Senate race. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to a lot of town hall meetings uh yeah, except I, sitting I, down and meeting with people. But I think that's a approach that we're going to start seeing from younger candidates. You know, that that I, I think it's important because I, I feel like, you know, when we think of the elder statesmen that are currently in the Senate and the Congress and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like a lot of people in our generation feel that they're a little bit out of touch with reality, the issues that affect cross-generational gaps. But I think Dan gets it. 
Oh, he absolutely gets it. And I think um, he, you know, that, that, first of all, he's a very likable guy, you know, and talking to him, very, very likable guy. He, uh, he has an eye patch. Who doesn't like that? Um, and just, I think his grasp of the issues is, is such that it, 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 it inspires confidence in me. You know, if, if I had the chance to vote for him, uh, you know, I, I would, I absolutely would. Cause this guy conveys, he, he has a presence, he has a, a sense of confidence about him. And I think that with his experience, I mean, I want that in a congressman. I want that, um, as someone, I want that in someone who's making decisions on my behalf in DC. Yeah, absolutely. So if we're going to have a, a conversation with Dan here in just a few minutes, but uh, be sure to head over to his website at CrenshawForCongress.com. Also, you can follow him on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is DanCrenshawTX. Uh, we'll tweet out some links on uh, this week's show, uh, but I think it's a great conversation that we have with him. I think we have him on for about 18 to 20 minutes, but I really think you're going to enjoy the conversation. But uh, you know, kind of uh, going back to one thing that we mentioned on uh, episode 130, when we had Ben Jackson on, who was a great uh, magician. We posted one of his magic tricks on Instagram. And I think it got something like, you know, 1100, 1200 views or something like that. Uh, but we're going to be posting a contest here in the next few days uh, to give away tickets for a show at the end of the month. So keep a lookout for that. We'll be posting that on our social media handles at Weekly Brewcast. And again, you can follow us there Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and, you know, Weibo. I, I don't know. I mean, all the different social media platforms Weibo. were there. Yeah, it's like the Chinese version of Twitter. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, come on, man. Get up on your social media game. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not on Chinese social media. I'm sorry. Just <laughs> yeah, also, you can also I'm subscribe to our there. website at weeklybrewcast.com. Uh, we post all the content there each time that we post an episode. And it gets pushed straight to your inbox. So uh, I think that's a great thing for you to do. But uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the conversation with Dan Crenshaw. Again, he is running for U.S. Congress in Texas, Congressional District Number 2. I really think you're going to enjoy the conversation. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. As many of our listeners know, we have a heavy bias towards sports on this podcast. And, you know, some of our great guests, uh, favorite segments have come from when we discussed politics and interviewed guests that discuss the issues that, you know, ultimately impact our community that we live and work. And today is no exception. We're happy to welcome Dan Crenshaw to the show, who is running for U.S. Congress in Texas Congressional District 2. And if you're not familiar with Dan, he is a sixth-generation Texan, which is insanely impressive, and a retired Navy SEAL who served five deployments overseas. And uh, Dan, we're honored to have you on the show this week, and uh, grateful also for your service and sacrifice to our country. Well, it's great to be here with you. I'm really uh, happy to be on here and look forward to speaking with you and your audience. Definitely. I, I think it's a cool medium to be able to have a congressional candidate on a, a, a podcast. And, uh, you know, before we dive into your campaign and, you know, the runoff election that's coming up in just about three weeks on May 22nd, uh, can you kind of give our listeners a little insight into your background as well as your time with the Navy? Of course. I, I grew up in the Katy area. My dad was in the oil and gas industry. I've moved all over the world because of that, but we were always based out of Houston. Uh, like you mentioned, we're six generations of Texan on my dad's side, and uh, we're a very proud heritage here. Um, I wanted to be Navy SEAL from a very young age. You know, I think I, I read a book about the SEAL teams by Dick Marcinko called Rogue Warrior. Uh, I was maybe 10 years old. And uh, so after college, 2006, I, I started BUDS, or Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL Training. Uh, broke my leg the first time through right in the middle of Hell Week and uh, made it through the second time to SEAL Team 3 on deployment in Iraq and then went back to Iraq in 2010. And my third deployment was to Afghanistan in 2012. 
And uh, that's where really when my life changed forever. Uh, I was hit by an IED blast. Uh, watched my Afghan interpreter right in front of me get completely blown up uh, by about 15 pounds of explosives underneath him. And I took the blast right to my face and the whole front side of my body. And I wasn't knocked unconscious, but I was completely blinded. And um, managed to get out of there uh, through, through through a helicopter medevac and woke up five days later after we put into a medically induced coma. I woke up blind and hallucinating and you know, praying that we could see again, and um, and we did. And uh, I was I, after some miracle surgeries, removing a cataract, uh, repairing a hole in my retina. I was able to start using contacts and and, and live a normal life again, um, at least to the extent where I was able to deploy two more times. I went back to the Middle East, not in a combat role, but intelligence operations sort of role, and then to Korea again in 2016. And by that time, the Navy bureaucracy had really caught up with me. I, I had to medically retire and look for my next. Um, in a step in, in public service. And um, I got a master's degree from Harvard Kennedy School of Government and um, you know, with, with the sole purpose of knowing that I wanted to work on policy and, and wanted to help the American people in a, in a different way. And um, that sort of led me here through other some more steps uh, along the way and ended up uh, you know, being back home here in Houston and, and running for Congress to replace Ted Poe. Yeah, Dan, what an incredible, what an incredible experience you've had. I just, you know, in, in, here listening to you how did that experience of being injured on the battlefield and coming back in, in your service and the navy seals how has that informed your uh your stance on on policy positions as you as you run here for congress well you know a few different ways i mean the the, the federal we, as conservatives as republicans we don't like the federal government doing a whole lot but one thing we all agree on is the federal government is in charge of national security and when you have people making decisions on important proposals or policies, it really helps that, that the people making those decisions have blood on the battlefield. Um, you need to know what you're sending your, your men and women in uniform into. Um, I also worked on a lot of different issues aside from just combat. And, um, you know, because after I was hurt, like I said, I went to back to the Middle East and Korea, uh, working on a much higher level strategy, behind the scenes uh, planning. Uh, working across different agencies, like within the intelligence community, law enforcement, foreign governments, State Department, our local embassies, uh, that's 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 the kind of thing you can't you can't be taught. You can't teach that kind of experience, and it's really important when we're making big decisions on what to do with the Iran nuclear deal. That decision's coming up. Um, you know how to deal with with the issues on the Korean Peninsula. Um, that, that kind of experience really matters at the federal level. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, as voters head to the polls, I know that, that one thing that a lot of candidates are doing as, you know, trying to emulate Trump in a lot of ways, what is your stance on kind of where the administration has come down on major foreign policy issues like North Korea? Well, I think we're seeing huge success um, on the Korean Peninsula right now. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really great to see. And um, so I absolutely support the president. And in general, I support the president's agenda. Um, now, on the Korean Peninsula in particular, I think there was just a lot of things that took place uh, that we should be proud of the, the president's strategy. He was very clear about his intent. He was very clear that military options were on the table. Um, they, they, they had a, a, a very clear-minded way ahead on sanctions against North Korea. And more importantly, I think diplomatically behind the scenes, I don't know this for sure, I'm not behind the scenes right now, but what it seems to me is that they, they gave the North Koreans a way out, right? And that's very important when you're doing coercive diplomacy. You need to give the other side a way out to save face. I think that's what happened. I think the North Koreans are going for it. And I think they see light at the end of the tunnel. I think they see that 
they can help their people a lot more if they denuclearize and if they integrate within the world economy. And so um, I, I think our president deserves a, a big round of applause for that. Yeah, I think both myself and Jeremy are uh, big when it comes to foreign policy. I think that's at least one of the three things that I vote on. I vote on the economy, foreign policy, then also energy. I think those are uh, key things. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned North Korea because we had Mark Bowden, who wrote Black Hawk Down on the podcast uh, probably about 30, 31 episodes ago. And, and it, he offered four solutions to North Korea and none of which involved what is actually happening now. So I think it's great to see, uh, you know, what the U.S., what Japan, what South Korea are doing to, you know, mitigate the risk on the Korean Peninsula. But, you know, kind of going back a little more locally, we mentioned earlier that you have the runoff election coming up on May 22nd, uh, just three weeks away. And, you know, going back, uh, you know, prior to the primaries, you were sort of a dark horse candidate behind Kevin Roberts and Kathleen Wall. And I think she spent more than like $6 million out of her own pocket to fund her campaign. But, you know, when it came to the primary, you forced runoff. You know, what was your campaign strategy, you know, heading into that race? And, and did you think that, you know, there would be a runoff? And did that sort of change how you adjusted your strategy? Well, we certainly expected a runoff um, just, just by the numbers. It was it was nine candidates total. And, you know, the, the two you just mentioned were not the only strong candidates. A lot of strong candidates in this race. You know, they were the front runners because of their prior political connections and, and funding. Um, you know, our strategy was, you know, cover the basics, right? You know, raise, raise the money you need to get the mail out there, get your name out there, get the signs out. Um, but in the end, running for office is really about connecting with people. Um, you have to share yourself with them or you have to be a regular person with people. You have to be yourself and genuine. Voters really, I think, respond to that kind of, I mean, in a lot of ways, we, Trump proved that you can get elected by, by just, I think, being yourself with voters even and and that's what i did I, I go out and connect with as many people as possible i go out to bars and restaurants and just shake hands everywhere and um go door to door and we had very very limited time to do this if, if we had six months filled it up um you know it could have gone to every house and, and convinced voters that way but we did a lot of meet and greets we would tell people where we we're going to be we were very active on social media and give give voters the opportunity to come in and see you and hear your thoughts um, and, and share yourself with them, you know, show that, that we, I'm, I'm just a regular guy and that I care about the American people, that I care about service before self, and that I know the policy issues. Um, you know, that's a big part of it, too. You have to be able, it, it's, it's not just enough to share yourself and get your foot in the door. I mean, I, you know, I have a story that I can tell people, but they want to know that you know what you're doing up in Washington, and you really have to know your policy. And, um, you know, I do have a background in this. I have I've worked on Capitol Hill. I've worked on legislative issues. So that I can offer. I'm not just an empty suit going up to Washington. Uh, and I'm not just a knuckle-dragged Navy SEAL. Uh, we've got <laughs> the policy experience, too. And, um, you know, can talk in, in detail about the economy and, and, and tax reform and deregulation. Um, these are the things that voters care about. They want to hear about things like flood control mitigation. What are we going to do about that? What can you do from Congress? Uh, it's not enough just to to list the things that need to happen at the local and state level, which we all know about. You got to tell them what you, what you how you can offer help from Congress. All of these things combined, I think we created a lot of excitement and inspired people to come to our side. And and we're we haven't changed that strategy very much going to the runoff. 
Yeah, and I think that's a great thing, you know, when when candidates are genuine, when they actually get out there and meet people rather than, you know, just having volunteers do the uh, the heavy lifting. But, you know, for our listeners that might not be aware, the second con- congressional district includes West Houston, a little bit of West Houston, uh, northern stretches of Harris County, also Humble, Atascacita, that area. Uh, you know, when voters go to the polls, whether it's May 22nd or in the uh, November election, what are the major issues that you think will ultimately impact your district in the greater Houston area? Well, it's the number one and two, I think, and not necessarily in this order, but border security and flood mitigation. Uh, these are a, a lot of voters view these issues as existential threats. I mean, in Texas, we're on the front lines here when it comes to border security. Uh, Texas has an enormous amount of crossings across our border. You know, since, uh, we, uh, the Department of Public Safety here in Texas measures these. We have over 50,000 just since October. Um, that that's that's not a small number by any by any means, and, and, and Texans want the federal government to do its job on international border security, and in flood mitigation, um, of course, it's again it's an existential threat to people. You know, we can't we can't live through another Harvey, and uh, we need to have the infrastructure in place to solve that. And there's different solutions for different parts of the district. You know, it's on the western side, like you said, where my district is. It's a reservoir issue. We need to be upgrading the reservoirs of Barker and Attics, and and we need to start the study for the third reservoir and, 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 and see if that's going to be feasible. And, you know, in the end, you have to give the water a place to go and it can't be people's homes. You know, the Lake Houston area, there's another there's at least three other infrastructure issues that we need to address. It's the dredging. It's more detention basins up north in Montgomery County that lead feed into Lake Houston. And then it's the Tainter Gates and there, too. Um, and we need to ascertain whether congressional support is needed on these or 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 congressional leadership to get the state and local level to do what needs to be done. Um, I've seen a lot of good progress on this, but um, I'm sure there's still going to be a lot of work to do by next year uh, when we're actually up in Washington. Yeah, you know, that's something that actually kind of hits me uh, at home. Uh, You know, my parents, they live up in the Woodlands area. They sustain two feet of water in their home uh, and just got back into their home, I think, in early February. Uh, I work at BP and out in the Energy Corridor, and we are not even moved back into our building after sustaining damage uh, there back during Harvey. So, you know, flood control to me and mitigating the risk of floods is something that I think is really important. And, you know, I'm all for, you know, states' rights, but it seems to me that the local government here in Houston and the state of Texas have sort of been I don't know, lagging behind and developing a strategy to mitigate that risk. You know, when you are elected and head to D.C., what will be your strategy like on paper to mitigate some of the risk for future floods that Houston is going to have at some point? Yeah. So the big thing from Congress right now is, is, is leveraging the Army Corps of Engineers to get the studies done and then the infrastructure projects done. Um, putting the language in legislation that maybe keeps Army Corps of Engineers out of it and, and authorizes Harris County Flood Control District. You know, that's an option, too, because remember, they're actually technical partners, which means they're authorized to work instead of Army Corps of Engineers. And, 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 and frankly, I believe Harris County Flood Control District might be better suited to do so because they're here. They care um, and they can move faster through, feder- through the bureaucracies and they can simply contract out projects. That's my personal preference. Um, it's a lot more discussion needs to take place on this. I, I've spoken with officials from Harris County Flood Control District um, on this, and there's actually differing opinions sometimes. So it's it's a it's a it's a conversation that needs to continue to take place. Um, you know, we need to hold the state accountable for the money that goes to it from the federal government, right? And um, and I, and I will say I, I agree with you. I think Texas was slow to move on a lot of these projects and slow to slow to. Um, identify what needs to be done, which we all already know here in Houston. We, we've, we've identified a lot of these projects already in Houston, 
And what I'm seeing recently, though, and, and I saw it with my own eyes, and Governor Abbott came down to Kingwood and listed all of those projects that I just said. And um, he, I think he's on it now, and I, and I think it's moving in the right direction. It's never going to be as fast as we wanted. And um, you know, my real job from Congress is to make sure that it does happen, that we get all the right people in the right room and the right leadership to take control and take responsibility for these. A big problem right now is that there, there was no really one decision maker to say, okay, let's get this study done. Let's get this infrastructure project started. There's too many hands in the pot and, and not enough leadership. That, that's slowly changing. And so it remains to be seeing what it will be like when I'm actually in the seat, if I'm in the seat um, come next year. But Keep in mind, it'll be something that's number one on my on my list of concerns. Right, Dan. And as you're talking about this, it just occurred to me, you know, how much gridlock and polarization there is in Washington. Um, you know, as I understand it, there's a, a record low number of seats in Congress that are occupied by veterans. And I'm curious, do you believe that, um, you know, electing more veterans such as yourself might alleviate some of that gridlock um, because you know you're not looking at party affiliation when you're on the battlefield do you think that having that background with other members of congress can help congress get more things done i I certainly hope so and um you know even in texas once uh we have six congressional seats held by by veterans that'll be down to four because of retirements and um that's that's shocking since texas has the second largest uh, population of veterans but, you know, we're problem solvers at heart and we're problem solvers. And we also started out our lives with public service in mind first. It's the first thing that any veteran ever cared about. So I think that says something. It doesn't mean we'll agree on everything up in Washington. In the end, you know, I have my values and I have my policies I want to get forward. But I think the trick is finding, finding that, that, that ground where we do agree. And I think there are issues we can probably agree on um, and just work towards those. Let's get something done for the American people um, and, and have that problem-solving caucus. And, you know, whether it's, you know, some Democrats, for instance, are, are in favor of school choice. I think I think things like, uh, like, like better work training programs and apprenticeship programs could be bipartisan. Um, largely agreed upon that we need a more well-trained labor force in America. So, you know, things like this should be bipartisan. And we got to identify those issues and then work together on those. Right. And speaking of of issues that are important to voters right now, the NRA convention was held this past weekend in Dallas. And I'd argue that there has been a stronger focus on the convention this year in comparison to years past as a result of what appears to be, you know, a string of of, of shootings that have have been in the media. When it comes to, to the issue of gun control, is there a balance that can be struck that satisfies both the Second Amendment supporters and those that have advocated for stronger regulations on guns? Well, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to say what the Democrats really want on this issue. Um, I can tell you exactly what I believe. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter. I don't believe that getting, getting rid of types of guns or types of weapons, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to ban ARs. I don't see that as helping. And, you know, and, I, and, I, and I take that perspective from not only my belief in the, the Second Amendment shall not be infringed, but also from a statistical perspective where you look at 2% of gun deaths being caused by by rifles, no indication that that two percent of deaths would just disappear just because you got rid of these rifles. And you know, the question has to be realistically: How are we going to enforce this? And is it going to do any good, or is it just going to make them feel good? Um, you know, the NRA came out in favor of certain proposals, and, and this is gaining traction among conservatives, which is something like a gun violence restraining order, where 
family member or even a doctor or teacher could say, listen, there's evidence that this person is going to commit um, a, a mass shooting or, or just a crime with a gun, you know, send that information to a judge who can prevent them from, from buying a weapon. You know, that's a, that's a reasonable um, policy that takes it down to the local level, the family level, and keeps federal government out of it. You know, in the end, I think we need to enforce the laws on the books. We, we, I am in favor of strengthening the background check system in reasonable ways so that it actually works and keeps guns out of the hands of the wrong people. Um, but in, in the end, you know, I, I do believe in the Second Amendment. And I do believe in our right to self-defense. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, a sensible approach. You know, education, uh, you know, is something that I, I think a lot of people that are talking on the issue right now just aren't aware of, you know, the, you know, different regulations, what's going on um, with the situation. But, you know, Dan, if you're speaking directly with the voters in your district right now, what is one message that you would say to them to, you know, kind of give them confidence that you're the right candidate to represent your district in Washington? Well, you know, this is about experience and in all my experiences at the federal level. That's why I'm running for this seat. Um, I took an oath to protect the Constitution a long time ago, and it's not just protecting it from foreign enemies abroad. It's protecting it from overtaxation and overregulation and federal overreach. It's protecting our Christian values. It's protecting our border. In the end, that's how I view myself as somebody who protects the American people and and protecting conservatism for another generation. You know, I view myself as somebody who can who can reach out to other groups, can reach out to young people, explain where conservatives are coming from explain our governing philosophy in a coherent and positive and optimistic way. Uh, I think that's what we need in the Republican Party. I think that's how we make it last. And, and that's what I'm offering. I definitely, uh, I, I think you certainly have the vote of confidence from this podcast. And I know that, you know, both Jeremy and I uh, have been excited to talk with you on these issues. And uh, we hope that, you know, this conversation has sort of encouraged our listeners to go out there and cast a ballot for you on May 22nd. And uh, Dan, for those that are interested in, you know, more information on your platform, your issues, uh, ways to get involved with your campaign, or even how to donate and contribute to help get you elected, what is the best way for them to connect with you? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Crenshawforcongress.com. It's C-R-E-N-S-H-A-W-F-O-R, congress.com. You you can check us out there. There's links to Facebook, Dan Crenshaw for Congress, Twitter, Dan Crenshaw TX. And um, you can really, we have an exciting campaign. I'd love for everybody to follow it and get involved. Send us emails. You know, we have something called Mission 155, where we got into the runoff by 155 votes. So every vote really counts in this election. And if every volunteer just contacts 155 people, gets 155 people to the polls, you know, that you could own the election for us. I mean, you could really be the responsible one for us winning. And, um, I, you know, when I, we take that seriously. We take every voter, um, every, every piece of support extremely seriously. It means a lot to me. It's CrenshawForCongress.com. Yeah, it's the grassroots movement that really gets stuff done uh, when it comes to politics. And uh, Dan, we really appreciate you for uh, taking the time and joining us. And since we are a sports podcast, we have to ask you, in a potential matchup between the Warriors and Rockets, who do you got? I mean, obviously, I'm a Rockets fan, but you know, I hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> I would never veer from that. So, God bless Texas. All right. Well, well, Dan, we definitely appreciate you for joining us on the podcast this week. And uh, we definitely encourage our listeners to go out and vote for Dan on Tuesday, May 22nd. And uh, Dan, we appreciate it. All right. Well, it was great speaking with you all. Closing time. Phenomenal conversation with Dan Crenshaw. Uh, really hit home on some of the issues that I think impact uh, Houstonian specifically. Uh, you know, one of the issues that I care about most is 
national security and defense. And I think he spoke uh, very well on that. Uh, you know, also his thoughts on North Korea, uh, I thought were a little bit interesting because I, I think when we had Mark Bowden on the episode, I think it was episode 100 of the podcast, he outlined four different scenarios uh, in which were possible outcomes for, uh, I guess, I wouldn't call it the conflict on the Korean Peninsula, but just the, the Kim Jong-un situation. And none of those four options at this point have come into play. And uh, I, I really like the fact that, you know, Dan is foreign policy driven. He's a policy expert advocate. He knows what's going on. And I, I really think he can make a difference in Washington. And, and another issue that I, I feel strongly about, specifically from a local perspective, is Hurricane Harvey, flood relief. Uh, you know, what we can do to mitigate uh, you know, national disasters like that from crippling our city as it did uh, this past fall with, you know, many Houstonians, uh, many people in the greater Houston area still recovering, people that are still outside of their homes. And uh, Jeremy, uh, you know, uh, we've had, you know, a few people, uh, state level reps uh, on the podcast before. We've had, uh, you know, judges on the podcast. We've had, uh, you know, political correspondence on the podcast, but we haven't had a congressional candidate on the podcast yet until Dan. And, you know, I think he has my vote. And uh, Jeremy, uh, what did you think of the conversation with him? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, he comes across extremely qualified. I, I think what I look for in a candidate like that is just the kind of experience to bring it in. Um, he's not some young go-getter who knows nothing about politics. He's been on the battlefields. You know, he's you know, spilled blood on behalf of this country. And he really has a grasp of the, of, of the issues because he's lived out, you know, uh, in the field and had to deal with the implications of things that politicians vote for in Washington. I mean, he's, he's been in, you know, in, in numerous combat situations. And I, I think he'll have a, a real strong personal connection to the troops and veterans in that way. And so when policymakers in Washington want to, you know, act militarily, he's going to be informed, I feel like, on a personal level, in addition to being informed on the substance of the issue. So um, I, I really look forward to the experience he brings into Washington. But, you know, apart from that, I, I was really I was really pleased to hear kind of what he wants to do about flood control. You know, that, uh, you know, affected your family uh, more than it did mine, but it came close, you know. Very I mean, close. I, yeah, you, know, I mean, I, you, were, you were sending me photos and of, like, you know, uh, the National Guard flying over. Yeah, they were Blackhawks, like, flying around my, my dad's neighborhood where I grew up, and, you know, I was out there with my girlfriend to help him move furniture up into the upstairs in case it did, you know, because we were... And I knew so many people in that situation, too. Right, yeah. right, and I mean, no one no one in that West Houston area, you know, Bri Briar Forest and Kirkwood, you know, out kind of at the Beltway, in I-10, no one there has flood insurance. Is, that's not in a floodplain. Well, I think this, I think the stat is 80 or 90% of the people that flooded in Houston did not have insurance. Right. They didn't have flood insurance because, you know, uh, we were, we were not in a floodplain. And I, I, I see we, cause I mean, I, I, I'm a part of that, a part of that group. And, um, I think the reservoirs gave, gave people kind of a false sense of security. Well, and, and, and the thing with the reservoirs is there was concern that they were going to break. Right. And if they would have broken, we would have gotten water down here in Greenway Plaza. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's a scary situation because, you know, I live on a first floor. You know, I, I, I was I was up in Dallas during the storm, but, you know, I had electronics and everything of value in a Pelican case that allegedly can float. It's waterproof. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure Pelican would have something to say about that. But, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's the claim, right. at least. But it's a very scary situation. And, and the fact that we've had 
what is it, three 500-year storms in the past four years? Memorial Day, Tax Day, and then Harvey. It's incredible. It's insane. It's it's, it's not going to stop. If you live in Meyerland, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know how people, The people that live in Meyerland, I think in order to, if they are rebuilding, a lot of them are doing the rebuilding process with putting their house on stilts. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely. insane. Yeah, I, I would. I would see that in like beach towns like Galveston or Port Aransas or Corpus. Right. You don't see that in downtown Houston. Right. And so I think from a, an objective policy position, I think Dan brings, um, again, that personal experience to the table and knowing what's going to to benefit the most people when it comes to uh, uh, planning for future huge flooding events. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what, what he can bring to the table, but he's got, you know, he's got the runoff election coming up here in about yeah, three May weeks. 22nd, May 22nd. And then he's got the general and, you know, we didn't really get into this uh, in our conversation with him, but you know, there's been talk about this quote unquote, you know, turn Texas blue, blue wave that's coming. And right now the polls, you know, it hasn't quite been panning out that way for Democrats the way that they would hope. But, um, at the same time, in the generic ballot, I mean, they are still ahead of Republicans. So um, we'll see what happens. It's yeah, going to be kind I, of a, a, again, as he said, you know, that campaign is going to change completely, you know, from the primaries to the general. Yeah, I, I would I would point out that his website, CrenshawForCongress.com, uh, for is actually a purple background, which I think is kind of interesting. But, you know, as, as he said, he he's, you know, a, a guy that served with the Navy five foreign deployments. Uh, three as a SEAL, two as, uh, you know, intelligence officer. But when he left, when he retired, he wanted to go into service as well, serving the community. So I, I think that's very admirable. He uh, he's, de- he's definitely a patriot. But again, if you want to contribute uh, to his campaign or uh, volunteer to help uh, get him in office, uh, you can definitely check out CrenshawForCongress.com. Also, follow him on Twitter at DanCrenshawTX. But, uh, Jeremy, a uh, great episode for episode 131 of the podcast. Uh, Rockets look like they're heading to the Western Conference Finals. Astros struggling. Hopefully, they can get uh, healthy this week against the uh, the Oakland A's before the uh, Cleveland Indians come to town this weekend. But uh, what do you have coming on top this week? Uh, well, I'm hopefully going to uh, magically procure a set of tickets and be able to go to the Rockets game on Tuesday. Are you going to buy a shirt? Uh, <laughs> if I go, I'll buy a shirt. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So you came far in 15 minutes <laughs> just uh, regarding the uh, the shirt issue. But uh, Jeremy, always great to uh, uh, you know sit down and, and podcast with you. And uh, you know if you want to follow our work, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, you can subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And uh, also give Hunter Atkins a follow. He's actually heading out to Oakland to uh, cover uh, the series against the A's. And his Twitter handle is at HunterAtkins35. So be sure to check that out. And hopefully we'll uh, get a roundtable discussion here coming up soon, uh, you know, pre- the, previewing the uh, the Warriors-Rockets series or perhaps uh, you're talking a little Astros baseball after the first month of the season. But I uh, want to give also a special thanks to Dan Crenshaw for joining us on the podcast this week. And uh, we hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I certainly did. Absolutely. It was great. All right. So on behalf of my co-host this week, Jeremy Paxton, my name is Austin Statton. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 